Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5? Uh, last Sunday, I kind of stopped mid-flow or uh, mid-text, and, and so I'm really keen to pick up from where we left off and, and resume at verse 6. But let me just do a really quick recap just for anyone who wasn't there or for those who've forgot uh, of what we looked at a week ago. Paul writes to elders at the beginning of, of this chapter, and so I took the opportunity to speak to and about the nine elders at Windsor, and, and we noticed how Peter instructs them to be shepherds, and then he says to them, I want you to carry out two tasks, and the two tasks are to care for and to watch over God's flock, not to watch over their own flock, but to watch over God's flock in this place at this time. And they're to do this in three ways. They're to do it willingly, not because they must. They're to do it eagerly, not for selfish reasons or gain. And they're to do it as an example, not to lord it over others. And then Peter writes to the wider church, instructs them to submit to their elders. And then he addresses everyone, elders and congregation, and uh, he says something that alters or certainly has the potential to alter uh, any and every church relationship. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Humility not only protects relationships in a church or in any community context for that matter, but Peter gives an even greater motive or reason for dressing like this as he quotes an Old Testament proverb where he says, God actually opposes the proud, but God shows favor to the humble. In other words, God lavishes his grace on the humble. And so Peter quickly follows that verse, verse five with verse six, where he then says, listen, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And this idea of humbling ourselves, we said last week, it's a constant theme of scripture that those who do that, and we choose to do that, those who humble themselves will be lifted up. They will be exalted. Probably not in this life. Not in this life. But absolutely in the next. Because why? Future glory awaits those who humble themselves. And so the road that we're on at the moment may be a road that is marked with suffering. And certainly for Peter's initial readers it was, and for many in our society and culture and context today it is. So the road may be marked with suffering, but its destination, the end of the road, the end of the journey is going to be characterized by exaltation and glory. So that's where we got to last week. And as Peter continues, he then offers an, another kind of sterling piece of advice. He then sounds a solemn warning, which in turn leads to a certain stance. So that's, that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at this other piece of advice that Peter gives. We're going to hear him sound this incredibly solemn warning, and then which in turn leads or should lead to a, a particular way of standing. So let's stand now and read from verse 6 to verse 11. I know we read these verses last week, but as I say, we didn't touch on them, or at least from verse seven, we didn't. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, 
the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong and make you firm and steadfast. And so to him be the power forever and ever. And everybody said, amen. Please grab a seat. Let me ask you a question. What, what, are, you, what are you anxious about this morning? What are you anxious about this morning? Be honest. And I'm sure it's any number of things. There are people here who are anxious for their family. They're anxious for their health or their family's health for their job. Finances. For the future. Some of you are anxious about tomorrow. So the question is like, what is rattling around your head right now? That, I mean, I know Glenn started this service by saying, let's bring our distractions before God. But for many of us or for some of us, there are things weighing heavy on our minds that are worrying us, that are causing us anxiety. And therefore, it's hard to kind of listen, to concentrate, to focus. And Peter's instruction here into that is well known. It's often quoted. But do we do it? Do we actually cast all, and don't mess that word, do we actually cast all our anxiety on God or do we simply worry ourselves sick on a regular basis? It's important to see this command in its context. So Peter has just urged his readers to humble themselves, but he has urged his readers to humble themselves in a particular place. Where does, let's get a wee bit of participation. Where does Peter, where has he just said believers should humble themselves? Where, under what? Under God's mighty hand. You see, because there is no safer place to be. There's no safer place to be. It's a place of divine protection. And how do you get under God's mighty hand? Well, you get there by humbly recognizing your utter dependence upon God's grace and mercy. That's how you get there. It's about admitting, do you know something? We need God. I can't do this, whatever this is. I can't carry this, whatever this is, by myself. We can't handle the suffering by ourselves. We can't clothe ourselves with humility all by ourselves. We can't submit to our elders without God's help, without God's favor, without God's strength. But Peter says, see if you can position yourself there in that place, if that is your location, humbly under God's mighty hand, then do you know what you will do? If you're there, you will cast all your anxiety on him. It just follows. It's natural. And therefore, my question this morning is this. Are you humbly living or are you living humbly under God's mighty hand? Are you looking to, are you depending on God? Or let's be honest, are you trying to carry and deal with your anxiety all by yourself? Where do you go? Where do you go with your worries and your concerns? And let me take this a little bit further. And again, I'm trying to keep it in its context. Is it not true or at least possible that anxiety and worry are examples of pride. Now, I know this is strong, but let me quote one writer on this. Worry is a form of pride. 
Because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in his mighty hand, acknowledging that he is the Lord and he is sovereign over all of life. And as this guy says, affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs one from God. Where do you go with your worry and your anxiety? You just carrying it? Distracted by it this morning? Weighed down by it? Or do you cast, I mean, as I say, it's a well-known phrase, but do we do it? Do we cast all of our worries on God? And Peter gives us a great reason for doing this. He says, listen, because God cares for you. God cares. God's not indifferent about your situation. God's not aloof. God's not removed. God has compassion upon his children. Peter's comments and words here are reminiscent of something Jesus taught during his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, where Jesus urged his followers, listen, don't worry about life. Don't worry about what you eat and what you drink. And why? Because you know something, your, your life is of great value to God. God will look after you. He is your Father in heaven. And therefore, worrying, says Jesus, it's a waste of time. It certainly won't prolong your life by a single day. And if you're here this morning and you're anxious, then please, can I encourage you right now, cast all your anxiety on God. I I know it's easier said than done, but you know something? Carrying it yourself is a whole lot harder. Carrying it yourself is a whole lot harder. Peter Peter then sounds a solemn warning. And as he does so, he, he repeats something that he said on at least a couple of occasions. He says, listen, I want you to be alert. And I want you to be of sober mind. And, and if you've been following the series, you know that back in chapter one, he said, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. And then in chapter four, he says there, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. So that this, this whole idea of being alert and of sober mind is a constant theme through this letter. And it means this, you need to be clear-headed. You need to be tuned in. You need to be focused. You need to see what's really going on here. It's a bit like Paul's advice to set your mind on things above. It's about having an eternal perspective. It's about seeing the bigger picture because you see the minute you don't set your mind on things above. See the minute you're not clear-headed and tuned in and focused. You'll end up earthbound. You'll end up caught in the here and now. You'll end up becoming incredibly anxious and worried about anything and everything. But in addition, says Peter, see if you're not vigilant. See if you're not clued in, you're going to get eaten alive. You're going to get eaten alive because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And again, this is another one of those well-known, often quoted terms and verses. But let me ask, do we believe, I know I've asked this, do we believe this? Like honestly, actually Do you believe this morning the devil is stalking you? The devil is real. And according to scripture, if we're not careful, he's going to devour, he's going to gorge himself on us. He's going to destroy our faith. And there are many casualties. 
C.S. Lewis, in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, refers to two unfortunate attitudes that many people, including many Christians, adopt toward the devil or devils. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Where do you fall this morning? Where do you fall? Do you you really believe? Do you believe that the devil is on the prowl here this morning? And this, this picture of him as a terrifying and hungry lion, it is intimidating. It is meant to be intimidating and threatening. Although the thing is, he can masquerade as an angel of light. And maybe that's the thing. He disguises himself, so we just don't see him. We don't recognize him. But God's word goes to extreme lengths to make clear that he is a genuine and a frightening foe. And unless we recognize this and unless we take the warning seriously, there's every chance there's a huge risk. You just drop your guard and you become easy prey. And so Peter says, you've got to be ready for attack. You've got to be ready for the attacks of the enemy. And they come in all kinds of ways and all kinds of guises. And so doubt creeps in and temptation comes along and apathy grabs you. Distraction, busyness, we just get busy. We just get really busy. Conscious gets dulled. All these ways. The enemy roars. And yes, we've got to bear in mind that he who is in us is greater than the one who skulks around us. We've got to remember, yes, he's a real foe, but he's a defeated foe. He's a real threat, but he's a limited threat. He's on a leash, but he's still real. He's still a present danger. And so Peter, just like the Apostle James, commands every single believer to do something in response to this truth. What are we all instructed to do? We just read it. What are we instructed to do? Resist him. Resist him. And that's a conscious. That's again a determined, that's a definite decision on our part. But it begs up and it throws up the question, how? How? Great reading phrases like this. How? How do you resist the devil? How have you resisted him this week? Because if this is true, that he is prowling around your life, intent on devouring you, then you've, you've been needing to resist him. So the question is, and the question I've been asking myself this week, how have I been doing that? How do we do that as a church? On a practical basis, on a daily basis, well, one answer could be, and some of you are maybe thinking, well, armor of God which according to Paul this time, you've got to wear so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, to quote Ephesians 6. So we have been given, we have been gifted with this six-item spiritual outfit that must be put on. Again, you've got to put it on. You've got to choose to put it on, consistently put it on, constantly put it on. And so the question is, are we properly dressed this morning? Not only are we all sitting here this morning clothed in humility towards one another, but are we wearing the armor of God? When was the last time you deliberately buckled the belt and fitted the breastplate in place and grabbed hold of the shield and strapped on the shoes and picked up the sword and positioned the helmet? When was the last time? As I was preparing for this journey week, I realized, you know, I can't remember the last time I put this on. 
Honestly, I'm not just saying that. I can't remember the last time I prayed this song. And yet there's an enemy on the prowl and he's hunting for something or someone. And if we're not careful, we become vulnerable. And as I say, I know I can think of lots of casualties this morning. People who have lost their way, people who have lost their focus, people who have given into temptation, people who have got distracted by other gods, people who have allowed busyness and doubt to creep in. And we've got to ask, and I constantly ask as I look around me at some of my peers that I grew up with who are nowhere today spiritually, what happened? What happened? And as Glenn said right at the start, the Bible's explicit, we're in a battle, and we wage war against three things. The world, the flesh, the devil. So I'm not suggesting that every single time we make a, real, a wrong choice, every single time we get waylaid, every single time we entertain impure thoughts or chase after our other gods or allow busyness to take over. I'm not saying that's the devil's fault or the devil's doing. All I'm saying is he could be heavily involved. And so Peter says, you got, and it's not just Peter who says this, we know James says this as well. Resist him. So the armor of God's important, but I want to give you 10 other ways to resist the devil. 10 other ways. I didn't think of these. Not that clever. Uh, I might have come up with them, I thought that for long enough, but I came across them during the week on Tim Challey's website. Some of you might know him, but on, on, on this on a site during the week, he refers to Thomas Brooks's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and he, and he summarizes the 10 ways to resist the devil. I love these. Do what you want with them. Be ruled by the word. Make the word of God your rule and authority. Live by it. Immerse yourself in God's word. It's so important. I know we say it from here so often. But as the people of God, we've got to be immersed in scripture. We've got to hide God's word in our hearts so that we do not sin against. How's your engagement with scripture been this week? Be aware of grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to discern Satan's temptations and to hear his roar. And see, if you grieve the Spirit, and we've talked about this time and time again, how we grieve the Spirit, but if we've grieved the Spirit, what we do is we drive off the one whose ministry involves guarding us against Satan's attacks. Labor for wisdom. There's a great difference between knowledge and wisdom. A huge difference between accumulating facts and then applying scripture to those facts so that they become wisdom. It is not the Christian with the most knowledge, but the Christian with the most wisdom who is equipped to battle Satan's temptations. And those of you who were there on Wednesday night who were part of that straight path stream and equip heard about the importance of gaining wisdom in our walk with God in our society and culture. We need to be people who labor for wisdom, who seek wisdom, who pursue wisdom. Fourthly, resist the first stirring of temptation. You see, it is safe to resist temptation, but it's always dangerous to entertain it. God promises that we can resist temptation, not that we can resist sin once we head down that dirt track. Temptation's not sin. The minute we entertain it, and head down that track. That's when it gets its claws in. And that's why we need to resist the first stirring of temptation. Five, labor to be filled. I know some of these overlap. Labor to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is a Spirit of light and power. 
His light shines brightness against the darkness of sin and his power is sufficient to overcome all evil and temptation. When it comes to fighting Satan's temptations, it is better to have a heart filled with the spirit than a head filled with facts. Keep humble. Keep humble. A humble heart, we'd prefer to lose everything than to, be, than to sin and live with a guilty conscience. But that comes with humility. That's why we've got to keep constantly clothing ourselves with this, putting it on, wearing it. Be constantly on guard. A secure soul is not easily led astray or ensnared. Satan strengthens his assaults when the soul grows careless. Continue communing with God. Quote, a soul high in communion with God may be tempted but will not easily be conquered. Such a soul will fight it out to the death. Take full advantage of God's means of grace. Nurture your relationship with your father. Do not engage Satan in your own strength. You need to draw on the power and even the desire to resist sin from none other than Jesus. And we need to do this every single day. Because he that's in us, the spirit of Christ who is in us, is greater than he who stalks around us. And finally, pray constantly. Prayer is a shelter to the soul, it's a sacrifice to God, and it is a scourge of the devil. And therefore, we must be people of prayer. And again, this is something we keep coming up with. We've got to be people who pray constantly and consistently and pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Ten ways to resist. If anybody uh, wants that list or a link to the website with it on it, speak, speak to me afterwards. But let's get back to the text. So we need to be alert and sober-minded. We need to be clear-headed here, says Peter. You need to watch. You need to be vigilant because there is a slanderer. There is an accuser, and his roar is as big as his bait. And therefore, you've got to resist him. And that's an active choice. And Christians who are passive about this are in deep trouble. Deep trouble. But Peter isn't finished because he, he makes the point, still verse nine, that believers who resist the devil remain firm in their faith. And there's a, there's a huge link here. And we must not miss this. But those who resist the devil remain firm in their trust in God. And the flip side by, flip side by implication is clearly that those who, those who do adopt a passive attitude towards the enemy, those who forget to resist or neglect to take him seriously, they, what? they will not stand firm. They will lose their grounding. And so my other question this morning is this. Are, am I actively resisting the enemy and therefore standing firm or have I taken my eye off the ball? Is my thinking slightly fuzzy around these issues and around enemy resistance? And have I underestimated the reality of the adversary? Or the adversary? Resist him. Resist him. But as we close, there's, there's a massive encouragement at the end here. Because I don't want anyone going out of here this morning and feeling God had by me at all. Or that, or that anyone going out of here this morning thinking, well, I'm just a rubbish Christian because I'm not alert. I'm not of sober mind about these things. I'm not clued into these things. I cannot remember the last time I prayed on the armor of God. I cannot remember the last time I actively resisted the enemy. I cannot remember the last time I even took him seriously. I don't want anybody going out of here this morning feeling God. There may be things we all need to do in response to God's word, and that's fine. 
but it's not all down to us. It's not dependent upon us. Yes, we have choices to make, but it's not all dependent upon us. Because Peter ends here with one of his favorite words. It's a word that he's used time and time again in this letter, and it's grace. Grace, verse 10, and he makes it clear that the one who called us by his grace, in other words, the one who saved us by his grace, see that one, that one's gonna see you through to the end. That one is the one who will enable you to persevere. And for these original Christians reading this letter for the first time, this was gold dust to them. God's grace has called you, yes, God's grace has saved you, but it has saved you to what? to eternal glory. And where is that? It's in Christ. So in other words, your future is sure because it's not dependent on you. It's in Christ. Eternity awaits. Heaven awaits. Your inheritance awaits. All of these themes have been coming through in this letter. And so what Peter says, he see what God has started. He's the one who has called you. It's all grace. He is the one who's called you by his grace. And so what he has started, he will finish because future glory, see that road that you're on, may be marked with suffering. We do need to clothe ourselves with humility. We do need to cast all our anxiety in God because he cares for us. We do need to be aware there's an enemy. We do need to resist him. But you see that road you're on? Destination's future glory. Because of grace, God's grace, and it's assured because it's in Christ. Now, as that says, you may have to suffer for a little while, but it is only a little while in comparison to future glory. And then you've got to keep reading because he says, God himself, God himself's going to restore you. God's going to make you strong. God's going to make you firm. God's going to make you steadfast. And so Peter uses these four verbs to kind of describe God's promise, and they all make the same point that this God of grace who calls us and saves us, he's the one who's going to sustain us to the end. God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't leave us to be eaten alive. And therefore, even in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of the enemy's attack and assault, The power of God's sustaining grace is a reality. And this power is ours. And that is gold dust. And so no wonder Paul finishes with a dox, or Peter finishes with a doxology, as we call them, this liturgical formula of praise, verse 11, to him. says, Peter, to him. So all these realities are so true. Because of God's grace, he'll see you through to the end. His grace is sufficient, and so to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so as we leave here today, let me encourage you to cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Let me encourage you to be alert, to be aware there is an enemy who is hell-bent on devouring you. Resist him, actively resist him, and you will stand firm. And in all of this, remember grace. God's amazing grace is powerful and it's God's grace that will see you through to a guaranteed future glory. To him be power forever and ever. And again, all God's people said, amen.